Theatrical credits for today's guest cover more than eight printed pages. He's been known to have five or six shows on Broadway at one time, and odds are, if you've attended theater in New York any time in the past four decades, you've seen his work. As we speak, he's represented by A View from the Bridge, Venus in Fur, and Time Stands Still. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and our guest today is the great set designer, John Lee Beatty. Hi, John Lee. Hello, how are you today? I'm good. Um, Let's start by talking about three shows on stage at one time, all of which seem to have opened fairly close to each other. Time Stands Still, View from the Bridge, Venus and Fur. How do you do them all at once? Yeah, I, I was teasing my agent. I said, it's so easy to remember our openings. There's one every other night this week. Um, that was an aberration. But, uh, you know, designers are a little bit like uh, maybe flight controllers. Uh, in, in You're landing different planes at different times on the on the uh, airport runway, and you hope they don't crash into each other. Uh Actually, though, truthfully, designers are multitaskers, and uh, I have the ability to do that. So it looked a lot more crowded than it actually was. I never was missing at the wrong time at any one of those productions. But it was was almost amusing in its – the frequency. I also have to say all three plays got extraordinarily good reviews – which is also <laughs> aberrational <laughs> in life. Usually one out of seven's a hit, and all three of them did very well, so pleasant. You talk about multitasking, but you're also conceiving different worlds at the same time. The, the demands of each of those shows are so different. Going from seeing the Brooklyn skyline underneath the bridge in, in view from the bridge to – as plain a rehearsal room as one can imagine in uh, Venus and Fur. How do you how do you deal with working in the different styles of the shows all at once? Well, in this week's shows, I would have to say the pleasure was it was three pictures of New York City. So uh, I'm a small town boy, and learning New York is one of the one of the adventures of life, and. Uh, uh, I had been in Red Bo- uh, Hook a lot, so I actually never even bothered to research it. I've been researching it for 15, 20 years. There are a lot of shops, built scenery in the worst parts of the city, and Red Hook was often the worst part of the city. It isn't anymore, but at the time. So I knew Red Hood- Hook quite well, backwards and forwards. Clearly, I know rehearsal halls, and actually I was conjuring the Manhattan Theater Club rehearsal halls for whom I was also a consultant when they constructed them. So that was a little in-joke on my experiences there. And then uh, a loft in, in, uh, in what emerged as Williamsburg, which began as downtown New York, um, Manhattan, I mean, uh, that one was partly from filming in, uh, from a film I did with Dan Sullivan uh, of Substance of Fire. So you're, you're, you're building off of memories and uh, research that you do for specific items, but a lot of it's uh, life memory. And it's very – I really enjoy the uh, conjuring up the, the way I feel when I walk into Red Hook or a rehearsal hall or a loft in Williamsburg. It's often said that you specialize in interiors and exteriors of homes. 
Do you think that's fair? I mean, I can't. We we can't sit and go through the list, but certainly some of I have to say some of the most beautiful sets I've ever seen of yours are indeed interiors of palatial homes or exteriors of rural yes, homes. Yes, yes. Do you think you've been? <laughs> you know, we we don't we don't think of you as you know soaring um, expressionist uh, statements. Well, so, in the middle of it all is the apparition called Chicago, but. Uh, Yes, I know what you're talking about. Dan Sullivan, the director of Time Stand Still, was teasing me at the opening night, and someone started to compliment me on the set, and he's an old friend, so he can do this. And he stopped them and said, wait, I have to tell you, John's sick of hearing that they just want to move in. But that is usually what I hear. There's something about (laughs) the interiors where they say they just want to move in. Oddly, on uh, Time Stand Still, someone said, I just wanted to move in, and I made a list of the things I was going to change, which I thought was very funny. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I understand that. We're all typecast. If you're an actor, you're typecast. Uh, There are certain shows I've actually turned down because I don't think you'd want me to to see me design them. Uh, I remember working with Eva Legallian, of whom I was quite fond, and she told me, she said she speaks English very well. She said she's done Shakespeare very well, but you could cast her as Lady Macbeth. She could play Lady Macbeth, but she shouldn't play Lady Macbeth. And certain things I do, I know I'm suited for better than others. The other thing is that most, uh, I love plays, and uh, most American plays are about real estate, quite frankly. Uh, Usually, sooner or later, they talk about selling the farm, the ranch, the house, the whatever in real est- in American real estate plays. I always say British plays are about class and American plays are about real estate, I think because we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, Scarlett O'Hara certainly was trying to save Tara. So uh, I, I, even Death of a Salesman or Streetcar Named Desire, they're driven by real estate concerns. You don't notice it at first, but sooner or later, they're about real estate uh, we have a horror of selling houses in this country <laughs> or an interest in buying them, I guess. Um, so a lot of American plays, which I love, take place in – I used to feel bad about it. Uh, Jane Greenwood, a friend of mine, costume designer, wonderful costume designer, I was crying in my beer one night to her about how all I get her plays with sofas and sofas and staircases and – I said this, I can't tell you who, but some trendy designer who was getting all the praise right then, and I said, and he never gets them. And she said, well, John, you know, he may come and go, but plays with sofas and staircases will last forever. You'll always work. So it's true. I mean, a delicate balance when my favorite productions was a big old sofa and a big old staircase and little foxes and uh, the heiress, one of my favorite sofa and staircases productions of all times. <laughs> there, there are a lot of them out there. Hmm. Out of them. A lot of it, though, is you know you're not repeating yourself. It sounds repetitive as I describe it, but you really aren't repeating. You are rediscovering, really, each time because the context is so incredibly different. I mean, yes, believe it or not, you can do arsenic and old lace ancestors Rosenzweig on the same set they have the same requirements but but obviously <laughs> you're conjuring up different emotional status uh, feel emotional landscapes for both or I should say interiors for both plays but so it isn't just a list of requirements it's a list of emotions you're doing as well 
as a result of that, the the real estate obsession, <laughs> would you say that you're always researching wherever you go? I mean, always if, if I had you over to my apartment, would you be poking around and saying, what does this reflect about the people who live here? Always. In fact, uh, I was in someone's apartment for a meeting and I realized that a week later I designed their apartment as the set for another play. Luckily, they were very flattered, but sometimes it's not so flattering. I also, one time I remember very, very I, you are always working. I'm working this moment sitting here. I'm thinking, oh, good, I know what to make a radio station look like someday. But um, I was uh, often, uh, designers travel all the time. I'm going to leave here and go down to Washington, D.C., right after this interview, but all that travel, and I always think, John, now don't be frustrated. Sit there and observe the the, the train station or the bus station or, or, the, or the airport or whatever. And one time we were doing a Pete Gurney play, Sylvia, and they said, oh, John, we have bad news. We're adding a set to it, and I don't know if you have time to research and build it. I said, well, what is it? And they said, well, it's a waiting room at LaGuardia. <laughs> and I laughed like you because it's so easy. It was like for designers, every oh designer has been in a lot I've of airport waiting rooms for so long. It was like, and I laughed to myself because, as you say, finally that research paid off. It's surprising how soon it pays off. Hmm. Well, let's go back to where this all started. You grew up in Southern California, and uh, your dad uh, was faculty at Pomona College. How? quickly did theater enter into your life? Um, I, my parents, of course, being both being academics, I came from very, uh, my both parents were very intelligent. And, um, they, it was a lot of ch- childhood enrichment, and I don't really know the first play I saw. I think, I, I know I saw Macbeth very early in a college production and Midsummer Night's Dream at the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. But the major event was I was taken to see Mary Martin and Peter Pan trying out at the Civic Light Opera in Los Angeles. And I, like many children, I was in first grade. I came home and I wanted to fly, but the more aberrational aspect of it was that I wanted to be a set designer when I grew up, which is really very odd for a first grade child to Hmm. say. And um, basically, I... (laughs) Managed to keep designing scenery since elementary school. So now, admittedly, your memory may be a little foggy, but I have to ask: so many children are. Uh, swept. I disagree with you. My memory of childhood is not foggy. No, good. I use it all the time when I design. <laughs> Terrific. And I grew up in big Victorian houses, which if you look at my work, you can see. In fact, they were teasing me at Lincoln Center because the staircase at the Little Foxes was so long and so unrelentingly tall and my sister happened to be visiting and they were teasing me and I said no staircase is going to be like this staircase is going to be like this and and my sister was there and she's I said ask her wasn't our house like that and she said yes absolutely <laughs> so I think I was crawling around to my hands and knees uh, checking out the woodwork all the time okay well then let's let's up. put your memory to a test because there's okay. something there's a really interesting dichotomy in what you just said because you came away from this production of Peter Pan wanting to fly, mm-hmm. which is imagination and fake, mm-hmm. and for some reason you bought that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you were – if you came away also wanting to be a set designer, you understood that there was an artificial world had, that had been created. And so I'm wondering how 
as a child, most children get simply swept up in the imagination. You are simultaneously caught up in the imagination and the very practical reality. Do you, do you remember more about well, what struck you about the set? Well, you just hit it all. I mean, that's the my story of my life. I'm Mr. Practical with an imagination. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that goes, that is being a set designer. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I could recreate large sections of that set. Uh, the ground cloths, and it had a revolve, and uh, these trees that opened up like fans, and I saw the little bit of a struggle they were having with some of the units, and I liked that, and uh, how they were painted. I just had a very, uh, you know, children have very strong abilities in terms of absorption and imagination at the same time. Hmm. I loved reading in an interview, and I certainly hope this is true, that your mother would not let you have coloring books. You only got blank paper. Well, you know, I had enlightened, enriching parents, and of course, that was absolutely true. I was I wasn't allowed comic books either. I did. I was allowed classics illustrated, so I did have Hamlet, The Count of Monte Cristo, and Lorna Doone. But I wasn't allowed. My father was terribly upset when he caught me reading Superman once. <laughs> uh, and yes, I just drew, drew, drew. They would not. No, coloring books were not one of the possibilities. We had stacks of paper and crayons and cardboard boxes, but yeah. So when did you get to design your first set that was actually constructed? Well, I made them myself. I think I put on Peter Pan maybe in second grade. <laughs> um, we had these big old California houses used to have these wonderful sleeping porches and you'd have a sleeping porch on the west and you'd have a sleeping porch on the east and we often slept on the eastern sleeping porch but the western one was too dusty and so I got that one and I built a little theater and and took uh, refrigerator boxes I believe to make scenery and I did Peter Pan. There was a certain point at which oddly (laughs) Shakespeare comes in and I just I the classics I was, illustrated version, no doubt. <laughs> well, I, I was exposed to quite a bit of Shakespeare at home and then on the college campus. So oddly, I knew Shakespeare and Peter Pan, and then gradually got to know <laughs> <it>. filled <laughs> in the gaps <laughs> between <laughs> those two. <laughs> but when you went off to college, you went to Brown, but you majored in English, which seems well, a I, contrary choice. Well, one of the problems, and I have to remember this when I go speak places, is that I never saw a living set designer until I was in graduate school. So I, it isn't one of those professions that you think is possible. But I had to admit, finally, that I had been designing scenery since being a little boy. And uh, I was good in English lit. I, I like English. And if you think about it, it's perfect for someone who designs plays. It's the combination of art and literature. You read the literature. You do the art together. Um, but my father taught English, and my whole family was teachers, and um, I assumed I was going to be an English teacher. And I, I actually aspired to being a high school English teacher of all horrible things to aspire to. But I, um, I just finally admitted I'd been designing scenery. And I kept designing scenery, costumes, posters, whatever, all, and directing, acting, all through uh, into college and through so. So did you go immediately from Brown? Did you apply for the Yale School of Drama? Uh, we had a technical, John Lucas, my technical, the, my technical, the technical 
director at the theater um, at Brown, which was a student-run organization at that time, uh, said that I should apply to Yale. So, so I applied to Yale like a immature person that I was. I didn't know any better. I just sent off my portfolio and I went to Yale. It's pretty simple. I didn't apply anywhere else. I don't know what would have happened to me. But and, and how did you even know to, how to put together a portfolio at that point? Well, I actually had quite a few pieces. They, mm-hmm. they told me later I was one of the few uh, design students who had actually had things built. And actually, I built the scenery and I built the costumes. I was a costume cutter and I screened the posters and I made the masks. So I had not a bad backlog. I, I was using shirt cardboards to draw on, but... Uh, you know, I was an, not an idiot savant. What do you call it? <laughs> it was a... It was a uh, Were you an autodidact? Something. <laughs> I don't know what I was. But, but so let me ask you to pursue that. You were entirely, it seems, self-taught, and you'd pursued this... Well, I read every book I could about scenery. Right. So, and I I did summer stock, and, and okay. I... I and I had some wonderful teachers. Uh, unfortunately, technical theater or design teaching isn't one of the major priorities of American universities. And I am deeply grateful that I actually was an English lit major because I studied a lot of literature and Shakespeare, and I studied English history and vocal production and many other things that have been incredibly useful as a designer. So I'm not sure I would have... Uh, agreed with being a set design major undergraduate in the undergraduate field, actually. But you said that you didn't really encounter professional set designers until you got to Yale. Ming Lee, the first week of school, there was someone standing in front of us who was a set designer, and he, you know, uh, <laughs> he showed up and he was standing there, and he had a life and you know, had eaten dinner or all those things. I'd just never seen one, no. And did you know from all of, of the study, the self-study I mean, that you've done? I academics, but, did, you know. Right, right. But, but did you know, I mean, Ming Cho Lee is a towering figure, you know, in American mm-hmm. set design because of the work that he, both his own work and the number of designers that he's, he's taught. Mm-hmm. When you got to Yale, did you understand who he was, or was he just the guy who was running the program? Uh, yes, and I did know who he was, of course. And, you know, designers have this, uh, we seem dizzy, but we have this sort of osmosis thing where we learn things unlike other people on the planet. So I did know who he was, obviously, and uh, totally respected him. I, I had memorized all the designers that I'd ever seen in a program, and I knew quite a, I mean, a frightening amount of credits from other designers. In fact, when Joe Miltziner came to speak at Yale, um, he got stumbled. Like me, he can't remember the names of his shows. And uh, when he stumbled, I would just fill them in for him. And he was a little confused at that point in his life. And he was 10 years off with his credits, but I managed to figure out what he was talking about. Actually, being friends with Miss Legallian was sort of the same way. I'd studied so much theater history on my own that we could have like a really... Uh, Frank Rapp about Julia Marlowe or somebody. <laughs> and mm. It's really quite a pleasure. <laughs> oh, but I digress. Yes, yeah, sorry. No, it, it, you know. it's fascinating. But but let me ask you. So when you get into a program, which is admittedly at Yale very much about doing work, it's not just sitting in classrooms being told mm-hmm. about things. Were there 
either things that you had to unlearn or things of which you'd not been aware in the process? I was a very good student. I have to, I realize in res- in retrospect, I didn't know it at the time, but I was just really open to learning about scenery and costumes, and um, I was just really interested and motivated. Uh, the other thing you have to remember that was wonderful about Yale for me was I had never been around other set designers my own age either, so I had hmm. always been the only one, and, you know, kind of, it was a little odd, but there was John being the only one always in elementary school and junior high and high school and even in college I was really the only one who wanted to be a set designer so um, there all of a sudden there was competition and boy the difference between my work the first week and my work the second week at Yale was astonishing Uh, I some light bulb went on I saw the other people did this and I was it was, you know, it was like a racehorse. <laughs> I saw the others around me, and I started to try to pull ahead. So once you got out of Yale, what did you do to get work? And what was the first work you went to do? Uh, um, I had been doing summer stock all along, and um, you have to remember this is the period of the regional theater coming to strength, and Ming Cho Lee was a very strong and still is a very strong supporter of institutional theater. Uh, my aspiration was to design for a regional theater. I took my portfolio from Yale around to a few of them, and nobody would have me. <laughs> and um, I took the union exam, and in my profession, there's a union exam for scenic design and there's a union exam for scenic painting uh, as well as costumes and lights at the time and I took both of those exams at the end of my Yale stay and I got into the union in both categories. I had a wonderful scene painting teacher Arnold Abramson who was head of Nolan Studios and had painted many of the great classic um, American musicals and plays. A wonderful teacher and I came to New York because there was nowhere else to go. And I like the classic story, showing up with my suitcase, I slept on someone's floor and got an apartment and got a job assisting Douglas Schmidt, a Broadway set designer, a wonderful guy. And uh, when he would run out of money, I would go out and paint scenery for my old teacher, Arnold Abramson, out at Nolan's Scenery Studios. And then at night, I uh, hooked up with old friends from... Brown, uh, one of whom was working at a small company called the Manhattan Theater Club, which was a room about as big as this. I'd say it was 10 by 10, and it had two telephones, I think, and four desks, and um, they had a small theater company, which is still running today, and in time stands still is on their stages on Broadway today. So. But this is back. They were up on East 73rd East Street. 73rd uh, in one yep. room. They couldn't afford, even though they had a theater, they couldn't afford to use it. They had to rent it out. Hmm. <laughs> How poor were we? <laughs> so started working there. Now, with Doug and Schmidt. Of course, when yeah. you come into the city and you're a new little Yaley, people do want to meet you. I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be that naive. Hmm. Um, so people check you out, and you're cheaper than everybody else because you're 25 years old and <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> so you're doing shows at MTC, and also fairly quickly, it seems, began doing work at another 
relatively young company, the Circle Repertory Company. Yes, how did that come about? Um, I did uh, a little show at Manhattan Theater Club, and then when they did get access to their big stage, I did their big stage show, and um, actually a rental as well, uh, and. Uh, they asked for a designer and they recommended me, the Manhattan Theatre Club did. And so then I did a Queen's Playhouse in the Park out at the old World's Fair Pavilions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they needed a, somebody who could do, uh, who was a combination of set designer and scene painter. And this is where my practicality kicked in. And um, I actually did costumes for some of the shows as well. So I did three shows there before they went bankrupt. But Fortunately, the last show was a production of Come Back Little Sheba directed by Marshall Mason, who came from Circle Repertory Company, which I had to, in shorthand, I'd read an article in the Times about them that said suddenly real plays about real people, which was really a revelation of, in 73 for... Uh, Why do you say that? Because theater wasn't necessarily going that direction. Hmm. Um I had always imagined I was going to be designing musicals, and I think many people would laugh at that today because I'm not known for my musicals at all. But, um, yeah, they had developed this sort of a reverence for American classic theater, of Tennessee Williams and all that, and, and an American acting style, which was based partly on movie acting, I would say, but uh, uh, and having a company, which was a really kind of cool idea for Americans. And... And that company was not just a company of actors, but it was a company of playwrights, playwrights. certainly Lanford Wilson being the best known, but people like John Bishop, I recall. You know, there were, there were people there were, who every year you would see a play by them yes, at Circle absolutely. Rep. Absolutely. And it became a company of designers as well. Uh, so um, Marshall liked what I did. I, it took me a while to get used to his philosophy, but it was all of a sudden like, you know, I got it. I mean, I got it. And... Um, he asked me to design the first show of their season the next year, and I did, but then they lost their theater, and they had to open a new one, so I designed it all, and then we ran downtown and opened a new theater down in the village and from scratch and put up this... We built the set on on site, and I painted it and helped build it, and we propped it, dragging things off the street or down. We couldn't afford a van, so you'd carry stuff down the street. And um, The shows were really very good, and the acting was excellent, and the sound by uh, Chuck London was excellent, which was a revelation, and Dennis Parrish, she lit the shows, and Jennifer Van Meyerhauser did the costumes. They liked the first show, so they asked me to do the second, and Lanford wanted me to do his new play, which was very flattering, and I ended up doing five shows there that year, and I think I won the Obie that year. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the Obie was at the time, but... But you were happy to have it. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I went back and was doing things in Manhattan Theater Club, but uh, and painting scenery, and finally doing regional theater for uh, finally and then um, very quickly in 1976 a play from Circle Rep Knock Knock by Jules Pfeiffer uh, moved to Broadway and I became a Broadway designer in 76 well what was the experience the first time of taking a show from Circle Rep a very small venue even into 
a smaller Broadway house. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't playing the Broadway. But um, as a designer, reconceiving your design for for a different space. Well, we had, and it was a show that required some tricks and a lot of tricks. Yeah, a lot of tricks. Um, It was fun. It was a fun show. Knock knock. It was about you know Joan of Arc visits two old guys in the woods in a house that starts falling apart and all sorts of tricks happen. She levitated and all sorts of fun things. I I think in our youth, uh, we moved it thinking we were going to keep uh, keep the spirit of the show from off-Broadway by giving it an off-Broadway aesthetic on Broadway. We soon learned to our regret, Marshall Mason is a very bright man technically, we soon learned to our regret that uh, Broadway is different than off-Broadway and that we hadn't reinterpreted it in a Broadway manner. There wasn't any money and there was a lot of other problems going on with the production, but uh, we learned a lot and we swore we'd wouldn't do that again, and sure enough, when I, I got another show almost immediately. I was unbelievably blessed to be chosen by Harold Pinter to design a Broadway show. I, I um, terribly, I don't think I've ever been more moved in my life. But um, and he did it on my portfolio, and then he met me in in that sonorous voice of his, saying, "John, would you be good enough to design my play for me?" And you're like, "Whoa, my God!" <laughs> and so that was. Uh, a production of The Innocents, um, uh, the William Archibald play, and it rehe- with Claire Bloom, and it rehearsed in London, but it was tried out back when shows tried out in Boston and um, came into New York and quickly closed. <laughs> <laughs> but once you've done one Broadway show, you're qualified to do another, so I had another one backed up behind that. <clears throat> what was what was it like to work with Pinter as a director? I mean, everyone tends to think about him as, as a writer. Yes. Well, first of all, I thought he was he was wonderful to me, and he I think he recognized what a 28-year-old or t- whatever I was, 27, 28, I think he recognized that I was a scared little boy, but... Um, Oddly, um, he totally trusted me, not to a ridiculous degree of approving everything, but uh, he was uh, had very good manners, I'm sorry. I don't know how to describe <clears> him <throat> better. Very good taste, very good man. The thing about Pinter that I just loved, I had him show me how one of the actors should say something in the script. I, I said, well, she says she reads the letter and walks across the room and puts it down. And he said, well, what's wrong? I don't get what the problem is. I said, well, I don't know how to make the ground plan for that. And he says, well, and then he got up and he showed me, but he did it like Pinter, you know. She she read the letter, and then she walked across the room, and then she put it down. <laughs> it wasn't that she read the letter walking across the room and then putting it down as she finishes the letter. It was all done Pinter style. And uh, that... And in a straight line, and I, I gave him a ground plan that let people walk in straight lines. A lot of plays where they smoke cigarettes and drink drink cocktails, they go in what I call circle eight sets, where they keep circling the furniture and putting the cigarette down and then darling, oh, let's go over to the piano, and, and then the phone rings and someone goes in another circle eight to answer the phone behind the desk, and... Uh, uh, we know this play. Uh, and Pinter plays, they walk in a straight line. They do what they say they're going to do, albeit ambiguously, but uh, they're a straight line ground plan. So mm-hmm. you can plop that furniture down and walk across the room. 
Let's stay with Circle Rep because you had a fairly unique opportunity not just to work within a company, but you ended up designing really a cycle of plays by Lanford Wilson, which were the tally plays. The first yes, and actually Spally I consider the tally, I personally, there's a series of plays that Lanford did that weren't tally plays that might as well be, there was a whole section of wonderful plays we did hmm. at that time. Yes. But I bring, it, I bring up the tally plays specifically because you had an unusual opportunity to design multiple shows about the same place, seen from different perspectives, both different parts of the property and at different times in the life of the property. And on top of that, I got to do the the off-Broadway version of them, the Mark Taper Forum Regional Theater version of them in The Thrust, and I got to do the Broadway version of them, which <laughs> is kind of remarkable also. So I have a set of... A wide set of drawings at home. <laughs> well, I, I'm wondering, what was the process of creating the Tally's home? And both in its heyday, which would be certainly in Tally's Folly, where we only see the gazebo. Um, which is already... Oh, but let's back up. Uh, you, could, tallies, you think it was already declining at that point? It was. Okay. And I, one I, thing I that I, I did not design Hot Al Baltimore, I came in right after that. Mm -hmm. One thing I noticed about Lanford's plays, and I really spoke to me totally as a... And, I should work for Preservation Magazine, but Lanford, all of the plays took place on the ruins of a greater American society hmm. or civilization. The, the, in 5th of July, they're living in the wonderful old broken-down Victorian house of their forefathers, Tally's Folly. It's a literal ruin of a boathouse on the banks of the Mississippi, and uh, Tale Told or Tally and Son, whichever title you want, we back up. But again, uh, there's layers of now and then and uh, what this house used to be. Very similar in some respects to Magnificent Ambersons, I would say, another family saga, but not in any way that Lanford lifted it. But just <laughs> to me, that's an Indiana story, but... Um, Yes, there was that, that layering, and there were actually other plays that you got never got to hear, but that Lanford would tell us he was going to write um, about Whistler Tally and some other people. So there were actually going to be more than three plays in the cycle, but it ended up three. The wonderful thing about Lanford and the company was, and this was the most wonderful, the Marshall would say, oh, you know, Lanford's written a new play. And, of course, you'd go, oh, my God. I hope I get to do this, but that's all you would hear. And then a couple months later, you'd hear, oh, there's a part in it for Trish Hawkins. Okay, and then a little later, you'd hear, you know, it takes place in Missouri. Okay, and then gradually little things would dribble out. <laughs> but finally, you know, Lanford's description of Tally's Folly, the set was the moonlight through broken shutters. That was basically everything, a, a boathouse on the banks of the Mississippi. But we had, we, Marshall and I, changed large parts of what one would think that was going to be. And there was a lot of fantasy going on. I identified with, I guess it was... Uh, you know, Whistler Tally, I guess it was the tally I'm thinking of. The, the one, they said he would, wanted to build a bandstand in town. They wouldn't let him, so he built the folly on the banks of the Mississippi, but it looked like a bandstand. That sounded very, very <laughs> me. And they may, I actually cut out the 
the Victorian fretwork myself. Now, I have to say, Victorian architecture is one of my favorite things, and if left to my own devices, I warn directors, it's going to look Victorian if you don't stop me. Hmm. I think it's partly because of my childhood, but I don't know. Hmm. Maybe because I'm a tall, thin guy and they have tall, thin doors. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's step away from Circle Rep because also in this period, you did a bunch of shows up at the Goodspeed Opera House. And oh, for wow. a designer... I also did a lot of David Mamet, which is well, aberrational as well. We'll talk, uh, to yeah, him so as, we'll to we'll talk about that. But, but what, what's, what's interesting about Goodspeed, I would think for designer, especially once you've had the opportunity to work on a Broadway stage, is the, the miniaturization at good speed because there's no fly space. Everything is roll drops. For people who don't know what that means, it's essentially like a, uh, a window shade that, that has to roll onto itself in some ways to bring things down because there's no fly space. Or an upside-down window shade in some cases because yep. you stack them back and forth, yes, right. Um, but you're talking about, you know, a proscenium with, you know, that's feet, something feet, like that <laughs> and maybe, you know, 20 feet from the, from the front of the stage to the back wall, you know, no that. wings, no wings, no fly... What's I know, it we like to, to work no in those, those constraints? Yeah, we used to joke, no wings, no flies, no depth. Oh, we should put on a musical. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, it was incredibly uh, um, instructive. A lot of the scenery ended up, I, uh, I think Beth Liff told me, uh, a lot of the scenery ended up being sort of like the Folie Bergère where you couldn't believe all that was coming out of the wings. But you would have to line up, like I remember that the teepees in, in uh, Whoopi, Whoopi? Yeah. the door of the teepee had to line up with the door of the kitchen, which had to line up with the door to the exterior so that they could walk through them all in the wings. You sort of designed <laughs> the wings and then pushed it out on stage and saw what you could make. I was looking at a picture the other day. Someone from Goodspeed sent a picture of me and doing Little Johnny Jones up there, which uh, is sort of the give me re- give my regards to Broadway musical. And um, by the time I left Goodspeed, I I can't believe I did this. There was a wonderful technical director, and Jim Crosley, and we together we had a full s- ship leave the stage and go out into the wings and disappear. And I don't, to this day, remember how we did it, but it, it was an amazing accomplishment. But you really learned, it was great training to learn how to cram that stuff together and what you could and couldn't do. I was also in charge again, in charge of the painting there. So I supervised all the painting of the, and painted a large portion of the scenery myself. So uh, that was an interesting, to learn all about the roll drops, which is really from... Uh, technology from uh, 200 years ago, really, or 150 years ago at least. Or at least the era when the building was built, which was Mm, 1876. Now, as we were going into that, you commented about David Mamet and said that was an aberration. I think that was your word. You did the water engine, you did duck variations. Yes, uh, um, uh, water engine, which I loved, uh, uh, Life in the Theater, uh, The Lone Canoe, um, uh, the woods, uh, yeah. There was a. I was living on many tracks, you know, and the, you can see that even today. I had that relationship going, a New York Shakespeare Festival thing going, Manhattan Theater Club going, and Circle Repertory going, and they sometimes they overlapped and sometimes they didn't. So hmm. Mam had ended up at Circle Rep for a while, and uh, all sorts of different <laughs> combinations of people. 
But, you know, it's funny, you've already said a couple of times, you know, you're not known for musicals. Certainly anything you did at Goodspeed were musicals. Right. And some of those transferred in. Yeah, painfully, though. I have to say, cheap musicals are sort of where I got typecast there was doing the inexpensive musical. Hmm. And that's a um, painful, (laughs) painful thing sometimes. Hmm. They lost some of Again, in terms of ambiance, I l- learned to move them better, but there was never enough money. The ambiance of the Goodspeed Theater was so strong and so delightful. You're on a summer night with stars twinkling in this gingerbread theater, and you go up the staircase, and you feel like you're in an MGM version of Showboat, and um, you see this charming tip-tappy musical, and then you take all of that away, and you just see the scenery in the musical, and, and you walk out onto 45th Street. Yeah, and uh, it's not, you need to counteract what you've lost. And uh, you, you hit on it earlier when you move things. And American theater, you're moving things a lot. From regional theater, uh, it's very rare that you just start and don't undo a play once now. It, it goes through many uh, metamorphoses. And... Uh, learning how to move something and keep its nature intact or counteract what it's going to lose is very, very important. Hmm. Very important. For the sake of the audience, let alone the play, <laughs> just so they can feel what they're supposed to feel. I read a statement by you that your designs express emotion. You know, and we started yes. this interview talking about real estate. Mm-hmm. So, so reconcile for me how real estate can express emotion? Well, let's go back to childhood. When I designed A Delicate Balance, I finally just recalled what it was like being a little boy in a big old Victorian house at night and what those rooms felt like proportionally and what it felt like to have the rooms further away be dark and a little scary. And that's an emotion of fear, actually, a little bit of fear. And you think of that while you're designing something that purports to be realistic. I don't agree with realism at all. I don't think, first of all, rooms have four walls, not three. And uh, But beyond that, I, I'm so incredibly selective about what's on stage. I mean, one of the joys of being a set designer is that you're picking, with the director, obviously, and other people, picking what is shown. And like Proof, for example, had no extruded plastic products and there were actually only five colors on stage that I recall that we took it all from a sweater of mine so so you're very selective and yet audiences say oh it was so realistic but it isn't you're selecting certain things in case of proof autumnal colors to give it a slight autumnal feeling so that there's certain emotion that we have on autumn afternoons and late or evenings that you're trying to get that feeling I'm fascinated, though, and I think the thing at Peter Pan was, as a child, was I'm fascinated that uh, inanimate objects can express emotion, and uh, I can make people feel a certain way when they look at a room, which is a very, I just find that really interesting, just incredibly interesting. Or Tally's Folly, where you just feel romantic, or certain emotions are evoked by the inanimate objects. Hmm. Not that scenery is inanimate because you have a lighting designer and often scenery is moving. One of my favorite things that I learned at Goodspeed with Jerry Gutierrez, who I collaborated with a lot, 
a Gerald Gutierrez to the rest of the world, I guess. Um, we found when we did a revival of Most Happy Fella that if you moved the scenery on one part of the music, the audience would cry. And then if you moved it on another, they wouldn't cry. And then there was a third place in My Heart is So Full of You <coughs> where you can move it and the audience cries. Now, why are they crying? If they didn't cry at the middle move, how come you can make them cry at this move? So something about objects moving and music and story add up to something that makes somebody cry, which I find very interesting. It's funny because it reminds me of another bit of scenery moving, which was, oddly enough, the curtain call of 5th of July, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, that 5th of July, (laughs) Act 1 was set in one part of the house, and Act 2 was set in another part of the house, and it used a curtain before each act. We didn't intend to. and And I recall that only at the curtain call, as the cast was on stage, the set pivoted. During the curtain call, and it was the moment at which you realized that how the, the, the perspective on what you were watching had changed, and it was suddenly, were you applauding? I think people were applauding the turntable that you must have put the whole thing on. Yes, and it wasn't a turntable. It was a very oh. interesting shape that had a motor I was young. <laughs> right, but interestingly, as that play evolved, we first thought that was going to shift a vista to end the act, and that got cut. Then to open the act, that got cut. And then, fi- and, you know, as a designer, I just invested all my efforts in making sure everything was on this unit and that it made sense and that this vista this way and this one made sense. And blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh, my God, I could have done it with two different sets, although we couldn't afford any more stagehands. But um, then Marshall came up with that. It really was the perfect solution because you really didn't want to show off earlier. You wanted to keep people in the play. But at that point, you wanted to say, oh, look what we did. Here's the curtain call. <laughs> so let me flash forward. And it was relevant yeah. to the play. Yeah. From the, when the play was first written, and it was called Regarding the Bosom of Abraham, uh, it was always two views of the same house, and the off-Broadway one that didn't have a, a, a positive drive rolling unit uh, also had a way to change, and it was very important to the script for mm-hmm. reasons I don't understand, but instinctively you follow an author's instincts, and that was Lanford's instinct. Well, what was so interesting about it was the way the show sort of changed pers- – it changed your perspective on what you just watched when you realized that the set was continuous and that the story was continuous. And so I want to flash forward because some of the work you've been doing in um, the Biltmore Theater for Manhattan Theater Club, I've been fascinated watching the sets change oh, yes. because <laughs> it, you – you actually see the puzzle. Now, again, now I'm nervous about using terms that I shouldn't throw about, but it almost seems like you're using, in some cases, a dual-turn system. And you change, I remember, in Rabbit Hole. Suddenly you'd, be in, you'd see the different part of the house, you know, and you couldn't quite figure out how you'd pieced it together because you'd watched it rotate into place. Right, which, was, of course, you don't want to show off, but for Rabbit Hole, which was about people being disoriented in a very real or grounded environment, shall we say. They live in Larchmont, and something's gone horribly wrong in their house, uh, in their family. Uh, appropriate. The real goal at Rabbit Hole 
was to get the playwright had written it as a multi-tiered set where everything was still, but he had these long scenes, and I knew the director, Dan Sullivan, and the actors were not going to be happy up on a platform for 20 minutes emoting 25 feet away from the audience. So it was all about delivering the actors and the props to the center of the stage for each of the very important scenes. They're very moving, these different scenes. But it would then disorient. It's called an eccentric turntable, I think, when they are not the same size. So you really, from the audience, couldn't tell exactly what was moving what, why, or how. And the ground plan was incredibly confusing, and the actors would finally, you just go out, go out the door, don't think about it, just walk to the next place, because if you try to figure it out logically, you'd be lost. So... Hmm. Um, and yet it was a logical ground plan. We kept turning to see different parts of the same house. There were duplicate parts of the house in some cases. And then as the play progressed, and this is very important, as the play progressed, we started seeing parts, two parts of the house at the same time. As the play, actually the playwright had written it that way. He didn't realize it necessarily, but it was gradually, he was amping up the disorientation and with a gifted director like Mr. Sullivan all the tools started coming together. Going back to that, let's go back to Tally's Folly, which has a ground plan which cuts out downstage center. And here's where designer and director collaboration works so well. I said to the director, we've cut out downstage center. What are we going to do? And he said, don't worry. It's going to be fine. And they chase. It's a chase, a romance. They chased each other around the set. He said the only important thing was that there's always another way out wherever they go. So if they run into the gazebo, there has to be a way for her to escape him out of the gazebo and him to chase her. They chased all over the set, and this is perfect. In the last scene, they get together at last, the two lovers, and of course the, there's a boat with water down stage center. The two lovers end up in the foot of the boat, and it fulfills the dramatic need of the play, the lovers unite, and in Subtextually, it fulfills the the design need of the play, which is finally have some actors downstage center where they should have been all along, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, the point of the play. They should have been there all along. And it's only fulfilled for the audience when they finally end up down there and they have to be together, which is when scenery and text and direction all come together. And that's what makes me happy. It doesn't always happen, but that's that. That was it, and rabbit hole was another expression of that. Mauritius, uh, again, a disorienting experience of a girl wandering through a sort of confusing nightscape of Edward Hopper paintings, really, was where I started. Um, Just, again, a picture of confusion where certain things make sense, and like an Alfred Hitchcock movie where it makes sense, it looks real, but something's terribly off. In fact, we used... To accuse the director and I are both big Hitchcock, visual Hitchcock fans, and used Hitchcock movies. I think that one was Marnie of all movies, but <laughs> it's um, real disturbing thing that you can create. How do you decide what shows you want to design? What's your decision process when something's offered to you? Well, I'm a script snob, so I like to read it. So there's the English lit coming out. But I I really like to work on well-written plays. You don't always know what a play is going to be like until it's up, of course, because a play isn't what's on the page. A play is what you see. So you, it's a bit of a crapshoot oftentimes. A lot of times you're not choosing for all the same reasons, though, 
Oftentimes it's the organization that's offering you the play. Uh, I've been blessed with a number of places that have asked me back, uh, directors who want to work with you, authors who want to work with you, and, and old relationships um, that add up in a certain way. And so it's not, it's, there's a, there is a human component to the choice. It's not just a script. And whether you think it's uh, appropriate, once in a while I've turned down something for moral reasons. I, I, just once in a while I just can't go there. I don't want to go there. You mean in terms of the material? Yeah. Hmm. Content. Hmm. Uh, things that I, especially things that I've, Quite frequently, not so much now as it used to be, but things that uh, put down women, I, I or unconsciously put down women, I, I've had or mm, discussions of social issues that I thought were dodgy discussions. <laughs> I hmm. didn't want, or just plain out badly written. That's that would be a, well, <laughs> that would be a, a mo- deal breaker. Morality <laughs> and bad writing are two very different places. Um, uh, there, uh, there is a slight humanistic streak to, to all of us, but, uh, you know, I, I have a slight humanist. I have a little trouble with chilly, 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 cold, cold, cold uh, plays. Hmm. Is there any play that you've done that you would like to go back and design again? Well, some designer friends and I were laughing, but there's some that I've ruined, of course. I mean, luck of the draw uh, that I've been either – you get help ruining things, but, but it's odd. You think, you think, oh, I, I actually would lo- love to go back and do some of the ones I didn't think I did right. And now that I've thought about, because you think about with great pain about the ones that you didn't do well enough, and I, then you think about it for years, and then finally you realize, oh, I should have done that. That would have worked. Because mm-hmm. if you've had a, f- I'm sure when you've done Shakespeare as an actor, it must be the same thing. If you had a bad Othello, you might want to do it again and see if you could get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, plays I'd go back to. Of course, I know I'm at the age where I do revivals of plays, period plays that weren't period when I first. And I have to do shockingly little research on to do the early 80s since I was there. Hmm. <laughs> Although you don't always remember what it was like, oddly. We all re- we change our memories. Hmm. Certainly products disappear. Well, let me not force you, but let me ask you a different question then. Are there any plays or musicals that you've not had the opportunity to work on that you would love a chance to design? Do you oh. think that way? Rarely, because I, I mean the theater is alive and always moving. I must confess, deep in my heart, I would love to design Showboat. I don't think I'm going to get asked, and I don't, you know, there was a major and wonderful revival of it recently, and I, I would love to do Showboat. It, it's something that I feel close to. Oddly, The Way of the World by Congreve. Hmm. Um, after that. Um, I don't think there's too many on the list. Although I've been able to, I was so happy this year to do the Royal Family. It's one of those plays sort of on my subconscious list of things I've always wanted to do, and it's always great to, you know, just to do any Shakespeare or Tennessee Williams or or um, 
place like that that you can come back to over and over. There. Because uh, Tennessee Williams is wonderful. You can do it one way one time and come back and do... I've done Streetcar twice and I've done uh, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof a few times. It's uh, just like Shakespeare. You can. Come, I've done Twelfth Night twice. Uh, you, it's fun to come back and do it totally differently, and it's still right. It's fun. It's fun. <clears throat> So still coming up that, that the public has yet seen, we've got <laughs> Lend Me a Tenor and Lips Together, Teeth Apart this season. How, how far are you into those? I'm, uh, my season is over in terms of designing right now because a designer works months ahead of the rest of it. Uh, so the scenery for um, Lips Together, Teeth Apart will be probably started in about a week or so. But I've In terms of the construction, yeah. Construction, but I've designed it and drafted it and everything, so it's pretty much ready to go, yeah. And hmm. there's there's a tour of Color Purple out there. My, I have more things going on than I will admit, but <laughs> hmm. there are more performances going on. Well, as I said at the beginning, it's it's extraordinary how much work you've done and how much work you managed to do in any given year, I mean, we've we've talked already about immediately upcoming what's currently playing. I didn't even mention, of course, we had Finian's Rainbow this season. We had Brighton Beach Memoirs earlier this season. You mentioned the royal family. I mean, that's that's quite a menu in one year, and that's just uh, New York. Yes. So we've uh, had Color Purple has been touring, and I'm and yes. Chicago. <laughs> well, when you, I mean, and Chicago's running Color Purple touring. Once a show's out on tour, is there anything that you have to do with it? Do you have to go see that it's being kept up, or do you have people who do that for you? Uh, I still do it. I enjoy the touring part. It's very interesting recreating a show for a tour, like Color Purple, reconceiving it for a tour because you're not, and you start losing the computers and go back to men pulling ropes and uh, hmm. things like that. So uh, you reconceive quite often. But it's fascinating, to me, fascinating work. I, I find that interesting. And uh, Color Purple, we've cut it down as we've gone along. We've cut it down twice, and I'm going to go next month, and it's going to go out again for another over another year in another form. So uh, it's not just cutting it down. Well, cutting it down so it can travel more easily and more efficiently, but also so it can play venues that we weren't able to go to before. So big shows get smaller and uh, more flexible. <clears throat> well, for literally dozens upon dozens of shows and presumably dozens and dozens of more to come, many of which represent places we'd all be very happy to live, John Lee Beatty, thank you for those, and thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Mm, thank you. Pleasure. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at the Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of the Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.